Good morning, Deer Creek. Great to see you guys this morning. Uh, if you are a middle schooler, I think you might have seen this already. You're invited to join uh, the rest of the middle schoolers downstairs. Um, for the rest of us, if you have your Bible, I invite you, please, open to Romans chapter 7. We're going to be reading through verses 7 through 25 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can actually go out to our next steps table, which is right out here in the front uh, lobby area, and you can take a Bible. They're actually free to you. You also see a number of books there that if you're new to Deer Creek, we want you to have that as a free gift. So go and grab a Bible. I encourage you to keep that open. We're actually going to be flipping through the Bible quite a bit today and digging into a very uh, extensive and very important passage in the book of Romans. And uh, before we begin, I just have a couple of announcements to make, and then we're going to pr pray, uh, read our passage, and then dive into our teaching. First announcement is this, that Good Friday is coming up this Friday. Do I have that right? It is this Friday? Next Friday. I said that. I said that. Next Friday. And that's going to be April 2nd. Two services this year in order to accommodate with social distancing and everything. Good Friday, if you're unfamiliar with that, if maybe you haven't been around the church for a long time, it's all about the crucifixion of Jesus and what that means for our lives. So we invite you, if, if you don't know a whole lot about the crucifixion, or if you know people in your life that need to hear that message, invite them and have them join us. It's April 2nd at 4 and 6 p.m. Second thing is a couple days after that is Easter. And Easter is when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to be doing something cool this year. First is we're going to be meeting in person. It's going to be awesome. Round of applause. Yes. Uh, and we're going to do something exciting. We're actually going to have a tent out in the uh, parking lot, much like Christmas if you were here. But we're going to do an outdoor service under this tent. Our executive pastor, Tim, said this will be the, either the greatest idea ever or the worst idea ever. So whichever it is, you want to be there for it. Last thing, uh, have you noticed there's a lot more people here this morning? Have you noticed that? Yeah, again, again. <laughs> uh, and the reason for that is, is because uh, I think people are just starting to get this sense that, hey, we can gather again and be in groups again and praise God for that. And along with that is we are always looking for people who have a desire to serve in Deer Creek. So if you've been coming for some time and you haven't taken your next step in reaching out and serving others in our community, we just invite you to check out the many opportunities we have to serve. You can go to DeerCreekChurch.com slash serve, or you can text serve to 720-782-6600, and you can do that now. I won't be offended as long as you're not on Instagram. And, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunities. You can volunteer in the youth ministry downstairs. You can volunteer in the children's ministry. I'm sure you were greeted by a front door greeter or a coffee bar person, or maybe you're really good on a guitar and you can join us for our uh, worship team. Whatever it is, I uh, would ask that you consider doing that. So is everybody ready to read our scripture this morning? All right. What we're going to do is we're going to read Romans 7, 7 through 25, and then we're going to pray and dive into our teaching. This is the word of God. <clears throat> What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. 
The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do the good I want, but the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inward being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that we are not in the dark. Heavenly Father, we know that you love us as well, and you've proven that by sending your son, Jesus Christ, who is truly God himself, to take on flesh, to be our redeemer, to save us from our sin. And before he left, he poured out his spirit upon us. And you, Holy Spirit, now live inside of us. You sanctify us and you illuminate the truth to us. And we pray now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the eternal God, the Trinity, we pray that you would help us to understand this passage and we pray that you would help us glorify Jesus all the more because of it. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So if you're just joining us this morning, we are in part 12 of our study of Romans, which we've been calling Basic Christianity. And we'll be calling it Basic Christianity for this reason, because we really view this book of Romans as kind of a basic Christian grammar, okay? So like my son Eli is in kindergarten right now, and he's learning the very concepts of English, right? He's learning his vowels, he's learning his phonics. It's it's a basic grammar in order to learn the English language. And so too, Romans is a basic Christian grammar. It provides us with the terms, the concepts, the ideas, the doctrines, and the teachings of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And now we've seen so far, right, as we've been trucking through this book, we've seen so far that Paul's main focus has been on one teaching in particular. He's talked about a lot of different things, But really, his central focus is on one teaching, and it's the teaching of justification by faith alone. And I hope you guys are familiar with this term now, if you've been tracking along in this series about what justification is. But just to refresh our memory, justification is a legal term. It's a legal term, which means it has to do with the law, the law of God, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. 
And justification as this legal term, you can think of it as two sides of a coin, okay? The first side of that coin of justification means that through faith in Jesus and through faith in him alone, a person is forgiven of all of their sins. They're forgiven of all of their law-breaking, okay? That is the first side of justification. The second side, the other side of justification is even better. And it means this, that through faith in Jesus, we are also credited the righteousness of Jesus as if we had done it ourselves. That is, through faith in Jesus, we receive Jesus' perfect law keeping in our behalf. We are treated as if we have perfectly kept God's commandments. And now I've said this before, But we can really think of this idea of justification kind of like a credit card, okay? If you're a parent of a teenager and you give your credit card to your teenager, which you shouldn't do, by the way, if you give that to your teenager and they go out and they start spending up and racking up debt, thousands and thousands of dollars, you can do one thing, right? You can forgive them that debt. You can actually pay down that debt when that credit card statement comes due. But you can also do something else you can also put a positive surplus in their credit card account, a surplus that they'll never be able to exhaust. Now for your teenager, that is a stupid idea. (laughs) But Paul is saying that's the message of justification and that's the message of this legal standing that we have with God. God, through the death of Jesus, has forgiven us all of our sin. And he has credited all of Jesus's perfect righteousness and his perfect law keeping to our account, a righteousness we can never exhaust. What freedom justification by faith is because it means we can never out the righteousness of Jesus. Is that good news? And now this teaching always kind of surfaces questions, though. And in Romans chapter 6 and 7, Paul has been handling these questions one by one and these objections one by one. And in chapter 7, he's handling questions that people have about the law, the Ten Commandments. Because people are thinking this, okay, Paul, you're saying that we're righteous, that we're justified simply by faith, not by our law keeping. So then, Paul, what's the purpose of the law then? Why did God give the law in the first place If he meant to justify us simply by faith, why would God give us the law? How are we to understand the law? What's the function the law plays in our life? In other words, what's the purpose of the law? Why the Ten Commandments then? And this morning, in these verses that we just read, Paul really breaks this down into two things. He gives us two important law principles. First, in verses 7 through 13, he shows us the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law. Why did God give it? The second thing that he does is he gives us the experience of the law, and that's in verses 14 through 25. That is, what is the experience of the law like for a person who follows Jesus? So we're going to take these in order. First, beginning in verse 7, we begin to see the purpose of the law. And Paul there starts with this question. Remember, he says, well, what should we say then? That the law is sin? And he says, by no means, yet if it not had been for the law, I would not have known sin. So you see this question, right? This question immediately that Paul asks is, hey, is the law sin? And this was a question that Paul would have faced repeatedly 
as a teacher because Paul had often said, it's by grace that you're saved, not by keeping the law, not by obedience to God's standards. For instance, this is just one example. This was in Paul's letter to the Romans. He said this, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And just a couple of verses over, Romans chapter 3, verse 28, he says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So in other words, your relationship with God, your acceptance with God, your approval by God is not based on your obedience. It's not based on your law keeping. No, that's not the purpose of the law. But you are righteous and you are justified by faith. So people hearing this message had started to ask Paul the question, Paul, it seems like you don't like the law. It seems like you're saying the law is bad. Are you saying that the law is sin, Paul? Are you going that far? And what's Paul's response? Well, again, verse 7, Paul says, whoa, 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 by no means. By no means. The law is not bad. The law is not sin. Don't hear me say that. The purpose of the law, though, is not to save. That's what I'm saying. We are saved through faith in Jesus alone. So what is the purpose of the law? Well, Paul says there's two purposes. First, he says the first purpose of the law is that the law defines sin. So that's why he says, verse 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. So what Paul is saying, right, is that the law for him defined sin. Paul would not have known what sin was if the law had not said, this is sin and this is righteousness. In other words, the law tells us what is moral and what's immoral. It tells us what is righteous and what is sin. It tells us what's right and it tells us what's wrong. In that way then, right, the law of God really functions like a God's Godward perspective of what is immoral and what is moral. And now I'd imagine that some of you are saying, well, hold on a second. Don't people really have the right to determine what's right and what's wrong for themselves? After all, who are we to tell other people that what they're doing is wrong? Or who are we to say that we're doing something that's right? Don't people have the right to define morality and immorality themselves? And maybe you've heard this line of thinking before. In fact, I was watching uh, on YouTube a Larry King episode. And Larry King, he was having these panelists who were debating a very controversial topic. And one of the people had a very strong opinion that what the other person was doing was wrong. And now Larry King objected. He stopped this person in his tracks and he said, hold on, wait a second. What this guy over here is doing is making them happy and it's not bothering you. So how can you say that it's wrong? In other words, Larry King at the end of the day was saying, hey, what is right and what is moral is not defined by God. No, it's defined by whatever makes a person happy. That's how you determine what's right or wrong. And now I want to ask you to consider this. While that idea that what is right or wrong is determined by my personal happiness, while that sounds intellectually satisfying, and while that sounds even compassionate, I want you to think about it, that 
we often know that things that make us happy actually lead to our destruction. So for instance, right, this is a very trivial example, okay? My wife and I, we love ice cream, okay? Especially Bluebell ice cream. Do I have any Bluebell fans in here? All right, woo, all right, Bluebell. All right, so Bluebell ice cream, right? Bluebell ice cream, I could have, honestly, three meals of a day. It is that good. Millennium in the morning, cookies and cream in the afternoon, and then cookie dough at night. I could honestly do that. I'd be broke for it too. But here's the thing. Millennium ice cream makes me so happy. But I know that if I have it every meal of the day, statistically speaking, I will develop type 2 diabetes. Right? What is, makes me happy leads to my destruction. Meaning this, that what makes you happy is a very poor gauge for what is right and wrong. Now take a more extreme example, right? Or a more significant example. Drug abuse. Many of us have people in our lives that actually have severe addictions to drugs. And now while those people would say, these drugs make me happy, we all know in our hearts that while it might sound compassionate to say, okay, it makes you happy, so I want to let you do this, we all know at a very deep personal level that what that person is doing is destructive not only to them, but it's objectively wrong. That's because we know at this deep heart level, our happiness is not a gauge for what is right and what is wrong. And it can't be. And now you might say, okay, well, yeah, happiness is not a gauge for what is right and wrong, but cultures define what is right and wrong, right? If a majority of people in a culture say that this action is right, then therefore it makes it right. If this culture says it's right and this culture says it's wrong, well, neither is right or wrong because a majority in the culture determines what's right and what's wrong, what's moral and immoral. So if 75% of people agree that X is right, it's right. Well, again, I want you to have you think about this, that if majority determines what is right and what is wrong, then in 1942, when Americans, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, a majority of Americans thought it was right to place people of Japanese descent in internment camps. It was a majority of Americans thought that that was a good idea. Or go back 300 years. When Americans, a majority of Americans, thought that it was right to enslave African men and women, transport them across the Atlantic, and have their, live their lives in bondage for the rest of their lives as slaves, and them being their masters. Now let me ask you, if a majority opinion of a culture determines what's right, then we have to say that the imprisonment of Japanese Americans and the slave trade were right because a majority of Americans agreed to it. The point is this, that majority opinion and feelings of happiness are not a good gauge to determine morality and what is right and what is wrong. We need something else. And Paul says this, it's the law of God. God's law, what we read earlier in the service, determines for us what is moral and what's immoral. It determines what is right and what is wrong. That's the first purpose of the law. The law defines sin. 
But secondly, and more importantly, and stay with me on this, okay, Paul actually wants to point out something much more important about the law. Paul says, not only does the law define sin, but the law reveals sin in us. The law reveals sin in us. And we see that in verse 7 again. Paul begins, he says, What shall we say then that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it not had been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So what Paul is saying here is that the law showed me my sin. Paul is saying, I didn't know that coveting was really bad. I didn't even know what it was to really covet until the law had said, you shall not covet, which is the 10th commandment. Now, let me ask you, why do you think Paul focuses on the coveting commandment, the 10th commandment? Why didn't he go to murder? Paul actually was a murderer. He could have gone to that. Why didn't he mention adultery? or idolatry, right? These really egregious outward sins. Why focus on covetousness when he could have focused on those big sins? Well, I think the reason is this. Coveting, unlike all the first nine commandments, coveting is a spiritual sin. It's an internal sin. It's a sin that you can't see on the outward face of things. It's something that goes on in a person's heart. In other words, coveting is dealing with our thoughts, our affections, and our desires. It's an inward sin. And what Paul has to say is that when he noticed this spiritual commandment, he realized the sin that was in his own heart. And in fact, Paul goes on to say later on in the passage, this is verse 14, he goes on to say that actually all of the commandments are spiritual. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual. He's saying every commandment has an inward spiritual dimension and every commandment cuts to the deepest part of us. And you know who taught this best? Jesus himself. So these are Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus puts it this way. Jesus said, you've heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder. So he's referring to the sixth commandment. You've heard that, right? It's wrong to murder. And he who murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brothers will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brothers will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, murder isn't simply the external act of taking somebody's life. No, it's actually something that's spiritual. It's internal. Even anger is murder. And then... Jesus says another commandment. Let's take another commandment. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, Jesus is saying, hey, adultery is not simply this external act of cheating on your spouse. It's spiritual as well. Even lust, even lust is committing adultery committing unfaithfulness. And so it goes with all the other commandments. In fact, one great story illustrates this. Jesus one time is uh, encountering this guy. He's called a rich young ruler. And this rich young ruler comes up to him. And he says, hey, Jesus, how can I inter 
enter eternal life? How can I inherit heaven? How can I be justified in your sight? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. Just do the commandments. And he says, well, I've done all those. Uh, I don't think he has, by the way. He says, well, I've done all those. And Jesus says, okay, okay. Well, if you'll be perfect, then go sell all of your possessions and then come and follow me. Sell everything you have and then come follow me. And then you'll be made perfect, he says. And we're told that that man went home dejected and sad. And the point of this story, right, is not to tell us that we're all to go out and sell our possessions. The point of the story is this, that although this guy thinks that he's kept every single commandment, he proves that he actually has broken the first commandment. That he, does, he loves his wealth and his money far more than loving God above all other things. He would actually hold on to his possessions rather than follow Jesus. So here's this guy saying, I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus is saying, man, you can't even keep the first one. You can't even keep the first one. That's because the law reveals our sin. It shows us our hearts. It shows us what is really going on inside of us. It's because the law is like a mirror, right? The mirror that shows us our true self. It shows, shows us the person that we often like to avoid. That's a terrifying thought, isn't it? Carl Jung, he's a psychoanalyst. He lived in the mid-20th century. I think he put it so well. He said, people will do anything, no matter how absurd to avoid facing their own souls. Listen to that again. People will do anything, no matter how absurd, to avoid facing their own souls. But that's what we do, isn't it? We like to avoid facing our own souls. We like turning a blind eye to God's law, which reveals our sin. And that's what Paul did as well. Paul in verse 8, did you catch this? Paul said, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. In other words, hey, when I turned my eye to the spiritual parts of the law, sin never pricked my conscience. Sin was buried, right? Sin had no effect on me. I thought I was a good person. And then he says, verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. In other words, I thought I was a good person. I thought I had spiritual life. I thought I had a God who was pleased with me. But then he says, but when the commandment came, that is when the spirituality of the law was shown, when that mirror was held up to his heart, he says, when that happened, sin came alive and I died. The law did what it was meant to do. It revealed the sin that was latent in Paul's heart. It showed him who he really was without pretense. And I love this because I can really relate to Paul in this. You know, I have a confession to make. <laughs> when I was actually studying for my ordination exam, right, I was studying for my ordination exam, and it was a, exclusively a digital exam, so you got it uh, through email, and you were supposed to take it all out on, online. And I have the Word document in front of me, and the very top of the paper, the very top of the exam for the Bible exam said, this is a closed book exam. And so I'm working through the answers, you know, and typing away, and I think things are going good. And then it gets to a question like, outline the book of Hosea. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I don't know Hosea off the top of my head. So you know what I did? I went and grabbed a Bible from my backpack, opened it up to Hosea, 
and I started making an outline of the book of Hosea on my ordination exam. Even on something as sacred as an ordination exam, I was willing to cheat. And you know why? Because I didn't even want to get one question wrong. I didn't want people on the ordination examination committee to know that I didn't know something. That's what the law does. You might have a problem with that, by the way, and you can leave if you want. I'm going to keep going. <laughs> that's okay. But that's what the law does. The law reveals who you truly are. And you might think, wow, this guy knows his Bible up here. This guy knows his theology. He waxes eloquently about church history. And that's what I want you to think. But that's because you don't know the real me. I'm willing to cheat and cut corners so you think that I'm somebody I'm not. But God's law tells a different story. God's law knows the real Daniel. And this makes me feel better. C.S. Lewis found the same thing. He said, quote, I find inside myself a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. Now, can I ask you, what do you see when you look in the mirror? What do you see? What do you see when God's law reveals your sin and it's held up to your heart? And would you want other people to see that? Would you want God to see that? So that is what the law does. So Paul says, is the law sin? No, law reveals the sinner. The law is not sin. The law reveals the sinner. Paul says that in verse 12. He says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem is that we are unholy, we're unrighteous, and we're deeply broken. That's the purpose of the law. The law defines sin and it reveals sin in us. That's what it was always meant to do. It was never meant to be the standard that we achieve so God approves of us. No, it was always supposed to reveal our sin and it was supposed to define sin for us. And then secondly, last half of our passage, Paul says, what is the experience of the law like then for a person who follows Jesus? What does it feel like to follow Jesus, in other words? And I want you to notice something crucial. In the verses we just looked at, Paul is speaking exclusively in the past tense right? Everything that he's talking about happened in the past tense, but there's a transition beginning in verse 14. Paul transitions to talking exclusively in the present tense. So what's going on here? Well, Paul, his focus has transitioned. In verses 14 through 25, Paul's no longer talking about the purpose of the law. He's talking about the experience of the law as a follower of Jesus. And we saw this last week, actually, if you tuned in last week or if you were here last week, Paul said this in the passage we looked at then. Beginning in verse 5 of chapter 7, Paul says, For while we were living in the flesh, past tense, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, transition right, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve, present tense, in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So Paul is saying, for every person that follows Jesus, there is a transition. There was a time when you lived in the flesh and you were spiritually dead. And there is a time when God's spirit gave you life and now you were made spiritually alive in Jesus. It's what the Bible calls regeneration, being born again. And Paul is saying, 
the flesh has been defeated. And now in verses 14 through 25, he's going to tell us, what's this experience then of living in the spirit? And it's not what you think. It has two parts to it. Paul says the first thing that happens is a person who's been reborn, who has spiritual life in them, is that they now have a desire, this genuine desire to please God. Verse 14, Paul says, for we know that the law is spiritual. Meaning, Paul now looks at God's law and he doesn't try and cut corners. He doesn't just look at the external. He acknowledges God's law for what it is. It is spiritual, it's good, it's holy. So you see this genuine desire to understand God's law, right? Then verse 18, Paul says that he now, uh, for I have the desire to do what is right. So see, now there's this earnest desire to please God, this earnest desire to do right. Then verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Everything we see here is that Paul's heart's been changed. He now desires to please God. He wants to please God on a heart level. That's his experience of the law, but that's not the end of the story. Because Paul also says that along with this genuine desire to please God, comes a horrible struggle with sin. Verse 14, again, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh. I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. Meaning there's still this old sinful self within me that loves sin. And then verse 18, he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. See, what Paul's saying is I have this new spiritual self and I have this old man and they're constantly battling one another. That's my experience. There's this great struggle with sin going on within me. And it causes him a lot of confusion. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it. That is my new spiritual self. But it's sin that dwells within me. See, my old self and my new self are battling against each other. That's my experience. I do the very thing I hate. I continue to sin, even though I earnestly desire to please God. And did you catch how Paul described this experience? Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inward being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. It's war. It's battle. It's conflict, it's struggle. There's this war between the old self who loves sin and this new self that wants to please God. That's what's going on in Paul's heart. You know, I'm constantly approached by people and they'll, they'll say, you know, Daniel, I'm struggling with sin. I want to stop. I feel like there's this constant conflict going on. I'm repenting and I'm confessing and I'm asking God to change, but it's so hard. I must not be a Christian. And you know what I say? Have you ever read Paul? Paul indicates here that a war and a struggle with sin is the experience of the law for a person who has God's spirit within them. A war with sin doesn't mean you're not a Christian, that you're unspiritual. No, a war and struggle with sin is evidence that you have spiritual life. A person 
who doesn't have any remorse for their sin is not a person who has spiritual, who has, who has God's spirit within them. Paul actually flips this on his head. He says, hey, if you don't know this experience, if, if you're always in the right, if you never do wrong, if you're never aware of your shortcomings and brokenness, if you never ask for forgiveness, if you've never cheated on an ordination exam, then that should be alarming. That should be alarming. Because that's usually not a sign of a person who has God's spirit in them. No, people who are spiritually alive witness a war going on in their mind and in their flesh and in their heart. Now, you know the song, right? The fruit of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit's not a coconut. You know that song? It's a great song to teach kids. And the, it's a great song, but it kind of rips those verses out of the context because the context of those verses is in the midst of this great war between the fruit of the spirit and the fruit of the flesh. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, But I say to you, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's what Paul says the experience is like. The battle of the flesh and the battle of the, and the, battle of the Spirit. And what's so ironic about this, you know, I, I, I hear people say, you know, Christians are hypocrites. And you know what I say to that? Well, yeah, of course. Of course we're hypocrites. You're right. Because that's the experience of being a Christian. I do not do the good I want, but I do the very thing I hate. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For there's a, they're opposed to one another. There's a war going on inside of me. I'm a hypocrite. And the ironic thing with this is most people, well, let me share these stats, right? The stats are this. 72% of people say the church is full of hypocrites. I say that's a little off. It's about 99.9%. And the only reason that there's that 0.1% is because Jesus is among us, okay? The line of thinking goes like this, right? Christians are hypocrites. They don't do what they say they should do. Therefore, Christianity, Jesus, they're not true, Friends, do you see the irony? Hypocrisy does not disprove Jesus. No, hypocrisy shows us our desperate need for Jesus. It shows us that we do not do what God commands us in his law. And we desperately need him to save us from the penalties of that law. And that's why Paul cries out in verse 24. I love Paul's honesty here. And this is where Paul wants to bring all of us. Paul says, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because that's what the war feels like. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from my sin? Who will rescue me from this war within me? You know, Paul, during the time that he was writing this, one of the ways that they would execute a Roman prisoner is that they would shackle the Roman prisoner's legs to a decomposing dead corpse. And that dead corpse, as it was decomposing and filling with all this sickness, would infect the person who was a prisoner and slowly take their life away. Paul's saying that is the kind of war that we're in, 
There is a new self that's alive and spiritually healthy. And there is this old self that we are called to put to death. And we're wondering who will put it to death finally and fully because we're tired of him constantly provoking us. And Paul says, what would automatically usually lead me to despair, seeing my sin, having my sin revealed, seeing this wretched man that I am, Paul, for him, it doesn't lead to his despair. It actually leads to his delight. Because he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus delivers me from sin. Paul's experience of his sin and his hypocrisy does not drive him to despair. It drives him to delight in his Savior. Because he knows that Jesus died to save hypocrites and sinners like him. Jesus' death on the cross assures Paul that even though his sin is revealed and his old self is warring against him, Paul knows that he has a Savior who loves him, he has a Savior who died for him, and he has a Savior who will one day remove sin completely from him in eternity. Only Jesus can do that. Paul's experience of the law is a great despair, but he looks to Jesus and finds only delight in a Savior who loves that wretched man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good and gracious God. We thank you that as a great physician, you reveal our sin to us. You show us our brokenness. You show us the wretched man that lives inside of us. And God, you'd never leave us there, though. You never show us our sin and our brokenness and leave us there, but you show us our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who perfectly kept the law in our place and who died to the law's curses in our place. Thank you, Jesus, for healing us. Thank you that one day you will completely remove sin from us. And we pray now that we would sing your glory because it's only in you that we can find deliverance for the wretched man. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.